Today on Blue 58, the Packers have started the process of replacing Mike Pettin, which means it's time for Matt LaFleur to shine. How will he handle the hiring process, and more importantly, who's going to end up as the Packers' next defensive coordinator? Then we need to take some time to evaluate Matt LaFleur himself before revisiting what's probably my most controversial take on this podcast. Was drafting Jordan Love really indefensible? Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of ThePowerSweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink. Very happy to be with you here for another episode. Yes, we are finally going to talk about, I guess, my Jordan Love comments. And it's probably the thing that I've gotten the most pushback on ever on this show. Uh, And I'm excited and nervous to take that up, but we'll get to that in a second. We've got a long way to go before we get there. We've got a lot of stuff to talk about. We are continuing our process of recapping and evaluating every part of the Packers from 2020, and we will get to Matt LaFleur today. But Matt LaFleur has a busy week ahead of him. He is interviewing what looks to be about nine candidates for the Packers' available defensive coordinator position. Generally speaking, look at the, looking at the class of guys, and we will look at them case by case here in a second, it looks like they're skewing younger and skewing towards guys that don't have coordinator experience but have coached a position group at a very high level. Generally speaking, that's about what you'd expect. I don't know if you can draw any broad conclusions about the sort of scheme that they're looking for. I don't think any of these guys is especially limited by scheme anymore. And I just don't think that's where the NFL is anyway, so don't get too hung up on whatever scheme concerns people might have, though that will come up here with one candidate. Um, But we'll get to that in a second. Overall, a little bit younger, and guys that are either defensive line coaches or um, defensive back coaches don't really have any linebacker-exclusive coaches in this group. And it looks like uh, the internal candidate is going to wind up being Jerry Gray. But We'll get to him at the very end here. Let's go point by point, kind of in order of the guys that we've heard of. First and foremost, Joe Barry. And, oh yeah, I should say, um, I cover all of these guys at some length in an article for AcmePackingCompany.com. I will include that in your show notes as well if you would like to take a look at that. Uh, But we're going to hit the high points here. So first and foremost, Joe Barry. He has done the job before. He's been the Washington football team's defensive coordinator most recently in 2015 and 2016, also coordinated for the Lions in 2007 and 2008. So he's got experience. The problem is when he was coordinator, he was not very good, or at least his defenses didn't play particularly well. He's never led a defense that finished higher than 28th in yards allowed or higher than 17th in scoring. So maybe look elsewhere if you are looking for proven results. Next on the list is Chris Harris, a former NFL player, played at a high level with the Bears, and then, you know, bounced around a little bit from there. Uh, It can be hard, I think, for guys to translate their experience, especially guys who are really good in the NFL into coaching. Uh, How do you – well, look at Aaron Rodgers, for instance. There's no doubt that Aaron Rodgers understands the game of football at an extremely high level, Right? And he can play the game at an extremely high level. But how do you teach someone who isn't you to do what you do? So how do you teach someone to come to the line of scrimmage, see how Alan Lazard is lined up, give him like a one to two word shout out 
for lack of a better term, communicating to him, make sure you really sell the blocking part of your route here because you got single high safety coverage. And if they buy it on the play action, you're going to be open for a touchdown. Sell the play action hard enough, get to the top of your drop and just put a dime on a receiver going down the field full speed. How do you coach someone to do that? How do you coach all those intricate little things? That's a challenge that I think a lot of former players deal with. Harris, for his part, seems to be doing a pretty good job at that. But he doesn't have a whole lot of experience doing it. Though he spent a little bit of time as a defensive quality control coach prior to becoming a position coach, last season was just his fifth year as an actual, I'm going to show you how to do this stuff type coach. That's not a lot of time to go from playing to getting into coaching to being a coordinator. Experience is kind of overrated until it isn't, right? You still got to run a program. You still got to get everybody on the same page. There is a certain amount of learning that goes with that. And the amount of learning you need is going to be different from guy to guy. Does he meet that threshold? That's only for Matt LaFleur and the Packers to decide. But it's from the outside looking in at least a nominal concern. Same goes for Ajiro Avero. If you're looking for a guy who is a little bit of an unknown, in part because his name is a little bit non-traditional, but really fun to say, this might be your guy. So the Rams have been getting hit hard, hard this offseason. Their defensive coordinator, now the head coach of the Los Angeles Chargers. Very nearly said San Diego. San Diego Superchargers. Nevermore. Anyway, uh, he's on that staff, did a great job with the Rams' safety, and is also a former quality control coach for the Packers, and may be one of the kind of dark horse hot candidates to be a defensive coordinator, probably if not this year, the next year. Uh, Brett Coleman, the great film breakdown guy uh, on YouTube, says he is one of the best defensive back coaches in the business, and he is not alone in that opinion. Everyone seems to think he does a great job. But like Harris, he's pretty short on experience too. He's been a real good position coach in the short term. But as with any of these guys, there's no guarantee he can translate that into a bigger role. And next up is Bob Sutton, who strikes me a little bit as a poor man's Wade Phillips. He's been a defensive coordinator in the league for a long, long time, 70 years old. He's, he's done it all. Um, and he's been a real good defensive coordinator at times, though I would say not a great defensive coordinator. And if you're concerned about Wade Phillips' age, you're probably concerned about Bob Sutton's age too. I don't really buy age as much of a concern as on either end of the spectrum. Old, young, or in between. If you can do it, you can do it. If you can't, you can't. Right? All that Matt LaFleur has to decide is whatever age he hires a guy at, is he going to be around with the Packers long enough to, to get the job done? So if you hire 73-year-old Wade Phillips, who doesn't sound like he's in the running anywhere, you hire 70-year-old Bob Sutton. Does he want to be here for three, five years? What's his plan? You could clear that up in one conversation, right? If he's healthy enough to hold a job in the NFL, you don't have to worry about him keeling over because he's 70. That's not that old, right? So that's not a super big concern, but it is something people are going to mention. It's going to come up. Bigger question with a guy like Sutton is why did things end so badly for him in Kansas City? You will remember how Kansas City exited the playoffs in 2018. Had a late interception of Tom Brady and the Patriots, but oh no, turns out there was an offside flag. 
and that wipes that out. May not have been an interception. I don't remember. It was a it was an offside penalty that wiped out what should have been a game-ending play. It was not. The Patriots go down and score and go on to the Super Bowl. Even worse than that, though, for Sutton is that the Chiefs hire a new defensive coordinator. They improve on defense and go and win the Super Bowl. How does your reputation really come back from that? Yeah, they got rid of me, and then they got better, and then they won the Super Bowl. That looks pretty bad. Whether it was your fault or not, that looks pretty bad. Looks pretty good, though, for a guy like Jim Leonard, whose star is definitely on the rise at all levels of football. He has been as successful as pretty much you can be as a defensive coordinator at the college level. Wisconsin's defenses under Jim Leonard have been excellent. Uh, He's more or less a Rex Ryan, Mike Pettin disciple, came up under Rex Ryan, played for Mike Pettin, comes from their schematic tree. If you wanted to, I think you could hold Leonard's college success against him a little bit. You know, he only did it at the college level. Sure, true, whatever. That means less than it used to. More offenses in college look more like pro offenses and vice versa. I don't think it's as big a jump anymore to go from college defensive coordinator to pro defensive coordinator. The real question there is the level of competition that you're playing with on a week-in, week-out basis, but you're going to adjust for that anyway. It's not like you have to do it physically. It's just mentally. I don't think the schemes are going to be that dramatically different. And it's not like Wisconsin is one of those teams that, I don't know, you you put a real stud athlete as, as an edge rusher and he just wrecks people week in and week out. That's never really been how Wisconsin has constructed their program. I think Leonard's style probably translates pretty well to the NFL. The big question for me on Jim Leonard is what does he really want? Does he want to be a college or a pro defensive coordinator because that's his career goal? Does he want to be a pro head coach? Does he want to be a college head coach? Does he want to take over in Wisconsin and be there for 10, 15 years, uh, just run a program, win 8 to 11 games a year, and eventually have a statue or something in Madison? That's an admirable career goal. We talked about that a while back, about guys jumping from the the, from the college ranks to the pros, it could be a real nice gig being a successful college coach. You can make a lot of money doing it, and there's a lot more job security there. If that's what he wants, that's great. Go get it. But the Packers should probably look elsewhere if that's something that he wants to do because I think you don't want a guy who's just going to be here for a couple of years and then be like, yeah, I'm going to go do something else. Though if you win a Super Bowl in that time, it really doesn't matter. Moving along, Chris Kiffin. I think I like him as a position coach type guy. He's right up there with Ajiro Averro. Uh, he's gotten great results in his last two coaching stops. He was a pass rush specialist with the 49ers, worked with the defensive line for the Cleveland Browns this past year. Good results, both spots. But he's got a short coaching resume in the NFL too. A lot of college experience, not a lot of pro experience. So if concern or if experience is your concern, this is a guy who's going to have some Serious red flags for you. Not so much the next guy, though. Ryan Nielsen has been a defensive assistant with the Saints for a long, long time. Recently became their assistant head coach as well. And he's been kind of part of the defensive overhaul in New Orleans. Used to be all offense, offense, offense. But they've slowly transformed into a pretty strong defensive team, too. If you have concerns about scheme, though, Nielsen might be your guy. The Packers have been primarily, though not exclusively, a 3-4 team during Mike Pettin's tenure and dating back to Dom Capers, so well over a decade now. 
Nielsen is not that. More than multiple front type stuff. There could be some transition time here. But scheme concerns are not really a big deal anymore. Nobody's lining up in base for 75% of their snaps or anything like that. And even if they were, I'm not sure that's that big of a deal for the Packers anyway. Look how they use Rashawn Gary and Zedaria Smith and whatever. They're practically defensive linemen anyway. They rush them from the inside. They rush them from the outside. They rush them standing up. They rush them with their hand on the ground. Nielsen's going to do those same sort of things as well. He's just going to find good ways to use players. Of the guys on this list, I have to say that Nielsen looks like the guy who has the least, I don't want to say red flags, but least questions for me. Seems to be really well regarded around the NFL. Seems to be ready to take that next step. He's got a lot of experience. It's almost to the point where you start wondering if this is a guy who really wants to be a defensive coordinator, right? Like, wouldn't it have happened by now if that's something he really wanted? And maybe he's just being selective. That's something guys can do too. But uh, you have to wonder a little bit. Well, you don't have to. You can just say maybe he didn't want to be a defensive coordinator. That's legit too. People can do what they want. I think, you know, just kind of speaking generally, there's this idea that you always have to be upwardly mobile, in your profession as a coach. I don't think that's true. A lot of guys just like being position coaches. Uh, I I was researching a bunch of potential candidates uh, as we started this process for the Packers, and some guys just bounce around and they want to be a defensive line coach. So there'll be a defensive line coach at some college for a couple years. Then the guy that they work with, who's their coordinator, will go somewhere else. They'll follow him there. Just bounce from place to place to place to place, coaching defensive linemen wherever they go. And that's a fine way to make a living. A lot of places, they'll pay you pretty nice money to do that. So I don't hold it against guys necessarily if they're not upwardly mobile. But it just helps if you are hiring these guys to know what it is that they want. Matt Burke is uh, next on the list. Not the former uh, Minnesota Vikings center. But Matt Burke, the former defensive coordinator for the Miami Dolphins. Burke currently the run game coordinator and defensive line coach for the Eagles. He was the defensive coordinator for the Dolphins a few years back. He was not great when he was there. 27th and 26th by DVOA in his first and second years on the job, respectively. Not great. Finally, rounding out the list so far, and this I must emphasize is just so far, is Jerry Gray, the only internal candidate getting a look here. I like that Jerry Gray's in-house. He's done the job as a defensive coordinator before. Good, not great results in his previous stints as a D.C., but but still pretty good. Um, he's helped Jair Alexander take his game to the next level. He helped Darnell Savage had a, have a better 2020 than 2019. Maybe he could do the, rest for, the same for the rest of the defense, too. But if you are of the mindset that the Packers just need to clean house on the defensive side of the ball, Gray's probably not going to do it for you. Maybe the stink of the NFC Championship game is just too much for you to overcome, and I understand that. Uh, Maybe it would behoove the Packers to just clean house and move on. That is another question that we are going to have to get answers to pretty quickly after the Packers make their hire here. What will they do with the rest of their defensive personnel? Is the D.C. going to want to clean house, bring in his own guys? That's something that happens a lot. But uh, maybe he wants to to just stick with the guys they've got in-house too. Maybe guys are going to want to move on because they don't want to work with this new guy. All these are questions that are going to have to be answered and we will get answers to them in the relatively near future. Kind of get the, the sense that we're going to know by this weekend. All right, moving along. 
We're going to continue our evaluation of everybody connected to the Packers, and we need to now talk about the head coach. Matt LaFleur finishes up his second year with the Green Bay Packers, having gone 13-3 and for the second year in a row. Another trip to the NFC Championship game and another NFC Championship game loss. Though if you are ranking the quality of losses, this one is probably a better loss than in 2019, but it's a binary. A loss is a loss is a loss is a loss. All losses, especially in the NFC Championship game, are created essentially equal. No style points at that point because there's no coming back. As I sat down to evaluate Matt LaFleur, I don't really know if I really have that much to say. As we noted last year, the thesis for the Packers coming out of the McCarthy era seems to be that the Packers really didn't make that much of a change on offense in the offseason following McCarthy's departure. They signed Billy Turner, drafted Jay Sternberger, and that's about it. And since then, that's basically been the same. They drafted A.J. Dillon, didn't play him all that much. They drafted Josiah DeGuara, he tore his ACL in the first month of the season. They added Rick Wagner just because they needed another offensive tackle. Personnel-wise, they basically got the same offense that they had during the last year of Mike McCarthy. Robert Tunyon is probably to the point of being an upgrade over Jimmy Graham. That's true. MVS is further along than he was. That is also true. Alan Lazard has come along too. That is also true. But really, it's not like they've added much. So really, the Packers were saying that we've got a coaching problem here. And in the first year, overall numbers-wise, the Packers didn't change all that much from the last year of Mike McCarthy. That is not the, the case this year. They are considerably better than they were last year. They are considerably better than they were basically any McCarthy season other than 2014-2011. So I really don't have that much to add about Matt LaFleur at this point. He's good. The culture he's made is good. It's easy to have a good culture when you're 26-6, and six, but sure, he's got a good one. Some of the decision-making stuff is still kind of weird. Why they run, when and how much, who's carrying the ball, those are big questions. Red zone stuff, as successful as they were throughout the regular season, it still can seem a little bit disjointed sometime, and that kind of circles back to the run game stuff too. Some overall program building type things. I mean, you've heard him talk this week about communication and miscommunication and what have you with Mike Pettin over the call right before halftime. Some of that seems a little bit like a tempest in a teapot. Others... And other realistic perspectives on it have you, you know, believing maybe that it is a, a big deal. I don't really know where I come down on it. The big point is that overall, Matt LaFleur seems like he's doing a pretty good job. He's an improvement over Mike McCarthy, late tenure Mike McCarthy at the very least, and seems like he is doing a pretty respectable job getting the most out of the roster that he does have. So I, I give him a, a pretty good grade. For 2020, we're not really doing letter grades on anything or anything like that, but I'd give him like A, A minus. Good year. Wasn't a great ending, but overall a good year. Yep, some questions, but how many coaches would you rather have than Matt LaFleur in the NFL at this point? It's a pretty short list. There's a lot of coaches that are not Matt LaFleur, which seems 
like an odd point to have to make just two years after he came aboard with some serious question marks. And I, I see some people, I've seen some interesting takes going around about that Nick Sirianni press conference in Philadelphia. It was, it was rough. Some people don't love public speaking. I don't particularly enjoy public speaking. That's why I sit behind a microphone and do it. I can edit what I say before it gets to your ears. If I've got to stand in front of a podium, I do not do quite so well. But what Sirianni said was pretty good. He sounded pretty nervous saying it, though, and he was getting dunked on by some people for how he said it. It reminded me a little bit of Matt LaFleur. Pretty rough initial press conference, but what he said was good, and the results have been pretty good, too. Can't complain. I think that's where I would land on Matt LaFleur. You want to complain, though? Let's talk about Brian Gutekunst. I say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek because we're going to talk a little bit today about perhaps my most controversial take that I've made on Blue 58. On balance, taken from 2018 to the present, I'm still a big Brian Gutekunst fan. His 2018 and 2019 draft classes had great years in 2020. His free agent acquisitions continue to be pretty good. Zedaria Smith was good in 2020. Preston Smith came on down the stretch, though he wasn't as good as, as he was in 19. That is true. Billy Turner was serviceable to very good at three spots on the offensive line until he ran into a bit of a buzzsaw in the NFC Championship game. Yep, that'll happen sometimes when you're playing out of position. Adrian Amos was really good in 2020. Rick Wagner was exactly what you expect Rick Wagner to be. It's a shame that he had to be starting in the NFC Championship game, and unfortunately we're never probably going to know how things could have turned out with Jared Veldier out there instead of Rick Wagner. Christian Kirksey, well, can't win them all. Undrafted free agents this year or low-end talent, a couple really nice pickups for Brian Gutekunst. Chris Barnes looks like he's going to be a starter next year. Henry Black was a solid defensive back in, in limited reps. Same with Vernon Scott, seventh-round pick. Not too Shabby. You've also got John Runyon in there uh, as a relatively late draft pick. Looks like he could be a big contributor in the future. Made some nice in-season pickups too. Tavon Austin and Damon Harrison, nice little stop gaps. Not spectacular, but he was active. Do wish maybe he would have added a little bit more receiver talent during the season. Will Fuller trade uh, that didn't happen, thankfully, uh, is the one that, that's going to come to mind. But Kenny Stills was just sitting out there for a long time. Even if you are big fans of Alan Lazard and Marquez Valdez-Scantling, which I think I probably have become, I, I think that's not mutually exclusive from adding receiver talent. But I am avoiding the big one. Possibly because in the past, now a couple times, I have used one specific word to describe it, and the time has come to talk about the word indefensible. That is the word that I used initially, and I guess since, to describe the Packers' selection of Jordan Love in the first round of the 2020 NFL Draft. So I would like to unpack that a little bit more. We've had nearly a year to think about it. Let's call it 10 months to think about it. And that's pretty much still where I am now. But some caveats before we get started. First, this is not about Jordan Love. Seems like a nice person. And I hope he's great, whether that's with the Packers or somebody else, because that's good for the Packers and good for him. He didn't ask it to get drafted by the Packers. Secondly, I really like Brian Gutekunst. I just happen to disagree with him about Jordan Love. 
which is fine because it's his job to make the picks and he's doing the best he can. I just happen to disagree with him. Third, my disagreement here, even if I call it indefensible, is not of the this is going to sink the Packers type flavor. I am not so self-righteous that I would think something like that. And no draft pick, no draft pick is that important. Unless you're picking first overall and you've got a chance to reshape your franchise, there's just no, no pick that is going to have that big of an effect. So when I say indefensible, just want to give you an idea of the scale here. Okay, so let's talk about it. Last April, I called the Jordan Love pick indefensible, and today I still believe that. Here is why. I'm going to talk about this in three parts. Part one is this. Picking Jordan Love was the result of a bad process. I have argued pretty much always that decisions in football and elsewhere need to be evaluated at two points, process and outcome. Ideally, you're getting good results with a good process, but it is possible to get bad results with a good process. That just happens. You're unlucky. It is also possible to get good results with a bad process, which is also lucky. Well, it is not, not also. It is just lucky. Then if you're getting bad process or bad results with a bad process, you're just going to get fired. So that's not one we really need to worry about. I think that this... Right now, we can say it was a bad process. We're still waiting on the results, and we'll talk about those results in a second. But I think we are talking about a bad process here for a few reasons. First, they traded up to get Jordan Love. Trading up is almost always bad. Almost always. Almost without question. Almost without exception, I should say. Trading up is bad. Spending two picks or more picks on one guy is bad because having two guys instead of one guy is almost always a better idea. You need a lot of guys to run a football team. And having more swings at getting more guys is almost always a good idea. The cheapest way to get more players is with draft picks. And giving up multiple picks to get one guy takes away those resources, that main avenue towards cheap talent. The Packers gave up the 30th pick and the 136th pick to get Jordan Love. And I've seen people call the 136th pick that they gave up, quote-unquote, mostly meaningless, and I think that's a mistake. Within the 10 picks that went after pick 136, there were at least three players who could have been useful to the Packers this year. There may be more, depending on how you want to categorize things. Legereus Sneed, a quality safety, went to Kansas City at 138. At 145, big swing offensive lineman Jack Driscoll went to Philadelphia. At 146, Tyler Biotish, a center, uh, went to Dallas. He started four games for the Cowboys this year. Do you think the Packers could have used any of those guys this year? I think they could have. You think they could use quality linemen or a quality defensive back down the road? You bet. And I'm just highlighting these guys because they were potential positions of need. More to the point, though, the Packers have a long history of getting good guys in the fourth round or later. Aaron Jones, Dean Lowry, Corey Lindsley, Micah Hyde, all of them were picked after pick 136. David Bakhtiari, Mike Daniels, Blake Martinez, all in the area. Don't call fourth round picks meaningless. Don't give up multiple picks for one guy. One guy. Furthermore, trading up in this instance just didn't make any sense. The Packers jumped over Seattle, Baltimore, and Tennessee to get to pick number 26 to get Jordan Love. None of those teams were taking a quarterback. 
So potentially the Packers are trying to outmaneuver somebody who might have been interested in trading into one of those three spots to get one. Who might those teams have been? Well, here's the top of the second round. Cincinnati, Indianapolis, Detroit, the New York Giants, New England, Carolina, Miami, Houston, and then Indianapolis again. Cincinnati, we can say pretty confidently, no, they are not going to trade back into the first round and draft Jordan Love. They took Joe Burrow first overall, crossed them off the list. Indianapolis was rumored to be interested in Jordan Love, but they said no, they weren't trying to trade up. Detroit, no, for similar reasons to the Packers. They have Matt Stafford or had Matt Stafford, and they were committed to him at that time. New York Giants also probably not taking a quarterback high, can probably cross them off the list. The New England Patriots, maybe they were reportedly interested, but they are not big trade-up sort of people in the Bill Belichick area. I have a hard time believing they were going to try to jump up just a few spots to get one guy. Carolina, another maybe, but Miami's not drafting another quarterback, and Houston is pretty set with Deshaun Watson, or at least they were at the time. And then we're back to Indianapolis again. So it seems like the Packers were scared of either the Patriots, Colts, or Panthers jumping up, but it doesn't seem like any of them would have really done that. The Packers, therefore, kind of bidding against themselves. The second point, under being a bad process here, is that the Packers seem to believe that they can develop Jordan Love. That's something that Brian Gutekunst spoke about today. It's something that Ty Dunn, formerly of Bleacher Report, formerly of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, wrote a very extensive piece about all based around the thesis of the Packers being able to develop Jordan Love. And maybe they can, but history suggests that's probably not going to happen. More and more quarterbacks are coming into the league as finished products, and that is partly because college offenses are more and more common, or college-style offenses are more and more common in the NFL. There's less developing that guys have to do. But it's also because there's no real time to build them up. Andy Benoit, uh, then of Sports Illustrated, wrote this in 2017, quote, the bigger issue is time regarding developing quarterbacks. In 2011, the current collective bargaining agreement significantly reduced practice hours both during the season and during the offseason. Naturally, it's the backup players' reps that disappear. There's barely enough time for the first-teamers to practice, which means the only way to evaluate a QB and let him learn kinetically is to put him with your first team. End quote. There's really no benefit to drafting a guy and sitting him. You're not going to be able to play him at all except for in the preseason. But on top of that, drafting the guy and developing him into a starter is kind of a myth. It really doesn't happen all that much. Quarterbacks taken 26th or later from 2000 to 2015. Did a little research on this today. I picked those those numbers because it gives us a pretty broad pool And it gives us a pretty good window with guys taken in the later end of that window to start a significant number of games. So quarterbacks taken after pick 26, 26th or later, how many of them do you think have started more than 50 games in the NFL? It is 11. 11. Russell Wilson, Andy Dalton, Derek Carr, Kirk Cousins, Kyle Orton, Colin Kaepernick, Nick Foles, Chad Henney, Teddy Bridgewater, Tom Brady, and Drew Brees. If you count Jimmy Garoppolo, that gets us up to 12. For comparison's sake, players taken 1 through 25 get us 26 names. 
in that same time span. More than twice as likely to get a long-term starter and a lot longer-term starter. Right, The number of games those guys are starting is a lot higher than the guys on this list, other than Brady and Breeze. It's just way more likely that you're going to get a guy early. There just aren't that many guys who come off the board late in the first round and develop into long-term starters. Ah, but you say, Jordan Love is special. He's uniquely talented. The Packers said so. They were the only team, according to that Tyler Dunn piece, where the head coach actually went and met with Jordan Love. But is he special? The book on Jordan Love is that he is talented but flawed. He's a great thrower of the football, got great physical tools. That's pretty rare, right? Maybe, maybe not. There are a lot of of flawed but talented quarterbacks taken in the range where Jordan Love went. From 2009 to 2019, here are quarterbacks who were drafted between 26 and 46, so late first round, early second. Pat White, Colin Kaepernick, Andy Dalton, Geno Smith, Teddy Bridgewater, Derek Carr, Paxton Lynch, Lamar Jackson, Drew Locke. You think there aren't a few talented but flawed quarterbacks in that list? Pat White's as good an athlete as has ever played quarterback. Same goes for Lamar Jackson, who has worked out really well in Baltimore. But for every Lamar Jackson, there is a Pat White, or a Drew Locke, or a Geno Smith. Heck, even Teddy Bridgewater, as good as he's been when it's been right, is still fairly limited as a quarterback. Same goes for Derek Carr. Same goes for Andy Dalton. Paxton Lynch, even more limited. Now, maybe the Packers are right here, but let's talk about what it would mean to be right and what it takes to be right. That brings me to part two of my argument against the love pick. The bar for success is super high here. Let's talk about what you need to compete in the NFL. To compete for a Super Bowl, I think it's pretty clear that you need an MVP caliber quarterback, a guy who could conceivably win MVP here. Look at the final four in the NFL this year. Aaron Rodgers, Tom Brady, Patrick Mahomes, and Josh Allen. Three of those guys have already won the MVP. Josh Allen was getting legitimate MVP buzz this year. I think to be competitive in general, you probably need a a quarterback who is at the very least, Pro Bowl caliber. Week in, week out competition, you need a guy who can play at Pro Bowl level. I don't have a lot of data to support that. That's more just my assessment, I think. But broadly, looking at the league as a whole, if you want to be competitive week in, week out, you need to have a guy who is at least talented enough to make the Pro Bowl. And given that the bust rate for first-round quarterbacks is pretty high, you're basically just hoping that he's going to be a pro bowler at least to keep you competitive, or you've missed already. Because with quarterback, there's no, yeah, he's okay. We wish we could do better, but we're going to just try to get by here. As with like wide receivers or tight ends or running backs, You can't just stick a guy in there as a warm body. You either have a quarterback or you don't. And to have a quarterback, you need a guy, like we've said, who who can play to a pretty high level. So the path to success here, even if you're hoping 
for a good result with with what I think is a bad process. The path to success is that Jordan Love is a Pro Bowl caliber quarterback, or you spent a first round pick late in Aaron Rodgers' career on nothing. And that brings me to part three. Are we sure Brian Gutekunst can evaluate quarterbacks? Are we sure? A lot of this situation with Jordan Love hinges on something that I don't think people have talked about enough. Aaron Rodgers and what the Packers think of him. Packers are, or People are talking about it a lot, but not in a specific way that I think people are missing. I don't think that's big of, it, it's that big of a stretch to say the Packers took Jordan Love because they thought Aaron Rodgers was done. A lot of people have said that. And if that is what the Packers did, that's fine. It's fine, but only if you look at it in a vacuum of just that pick. There's a lot more to the Aaron Rodgers situation with the Packers, though, than just this pick. We've got to wind back the clock a little bit here so we can look at the whole deal. And you kind of get whiplash a little bit if you look at how often the Packers' opinion of Aaron Rodgers seems to change. Just before the 2018 season, they signed him to a big contract extension. But then, after the 2019 season, they drafted Jordan Love. Not even two years later. Did they project things with Aaron Rodgers poorly and decide, oh wait, we screwed up offering him that extension. We better think about drafting Aaron Love or Jordan Love because we might need him sooner than later. But then after 2020, Aaron Rodgers puts up an MVP caliber year and everybody's saying, well, he's going to be our quarterback for a long time. There are some inconsistencies here that might just seem weird, but here's a thought. Maybe Brian Gutekunst just isn't that good at evaluating quarterbacks. Maybe he doesn't know what he has. And maybe that means some things about what he's able to do as far as picking quarterbacks for the future. Keep in mind that Brian Gutekunst was part of a front office that thought Brent Hundley was a viable NFL quarterback and didn't do anything to try to upgrade that position when Aaron Rodgers went down in 2017. He was also part of a front office that seriously considered taking Deshaun Kaiser in the first round in 2017. He also later traded for Deshaun Kaiser and thought he was good enough to be the Packers' primary backup behind Aaron Rodgers. He also did all of the Aaron Rodgers things that we've talked about, seemingly going from one extreme to the next and back again. And now we've got Jordan Love. How can we be sure that this is really a good idea? Well, we can't, obviously. We never really could. But I think if you take all of those quarterback decisions on balance, if you take the path to success that the Packers are going to have to walk to make this pick make sense, if you take a look at their process, I think it adds up to make this decision at best really, really puzzling. And at worst, indefensible. So that's my speech. This is my take. Probably the most controversial Packers take that I have. And ultimately, I hope it works out for the Packers. I think there's a pretty good chance that it's not going to, though. There are plenty of people who disagree with me, and that's fine. There's plenty more people who say it doesn't really matter. That's also fine. But I think the point of having a conversation like this, and not having everybody disagree, or having everybody agree, rather, is really what the goal of this show is all about. We're trying to become smarter Packers fans, right? 
Sometimes that means having a dissenting opinion, and sometimes that means having discussions where not everybody is going to be necessarily on the same page. But that's fine. That's where the learning happens. On the boundaries, pushing the edges of what we know about the Packers, what we assume to be true. I think the biggest thing that I have learned as I've become older is that not everybody has everything figured out. As a kid, it was easy to assume that everybody was competent and everybody knew what they were doing because that's how it feels as a kid watching adults do what they do. But when you're an adult in the world of adults, you see that pretty much everybody's just making it up as they go along. And we should remember that fact when we're talking about our our sports teams. These people might seem like they know what they're doing, but a lot of them are probably making it up as they go along. And we should have conversations with that in mind. That's all I'm really trying to get across here. Anyway, that's all I've got for you on this episode. We went way long on this one. 41 minutes, it looks like right now. Bonus content for you. Thank you for sticking with me through this whole episode. And if you enjoyed it, if you think somebody else might enjoy it too, do me a favor and share it with him. That's going to help me continue to grow this show. It's going to give all of us more people to talk to. And ultimately, it's going to help all of us become smarter Packers fans. Because as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans. And better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We will see you next time on Blue 58.